If you would, please take a copy of God's word and turn to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. We'll, Lord willing, be back in uh, the book of Acts next week. But uh, Psalm 126, I'll say more after we read the text. And uh, just to remind you, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the passage on the inside cover of the bulletin. There should be pew Bibles. The black ones are pew Bibles. The red ones are hymnals in the chair racks in front of you. Without further ado, let's hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And since the reading of God's word, grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our God. We earnestly seek you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So Father, we pray that you would satisfy our hunger, our thirst for more of you, that you would give us what we need this morning. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Floods can be terrifying. About 10 years ago, a policeman knocked on our door about four in the morning. A tropical storm was hovering over our town, and he pointed out to us that our mailbox was underwater. So all we could do is wait and watch the water slowly inch towards our house. Later, we praised the Lord that our house was built on the highest point of our property as we watched the water go down. And then later, we also bought flood insurance. But floods can be terrifying. Floods can also be terrific when they're the metaphorical kind, when they're the flood of goodness and mercy that God sends. There's this one Chris Tomlin song. We've sung it before. It goes like this. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. That kind of flood, God's flash flood of mercy, that can be terrific, amazing, exhilarating, almost unbelievable, like a dream come true. That's what the psalmist remembers and hopes for this morning. He wants another flash flood of mercy, and we should too. This is our state of the church sermon because later today we'll have our congregational meeting. This is a little bit about Forest Gate, our past, our present, and Lord willing, our future. But it's also a lot about God's grace, his flash floods of mercy, these sudden, unexpected, almost too good to be true things that he sends. The kind that we've already seen, the kind that we hope for in the future. Because the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. And so we say, make us glad again, O Lord. Do it swiftly and surely. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. What does that mean? Oh, I'll tell you. You'll find out. You're, you're going to want to know. 
And once you do, I hope you want to say it as well. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Three points today, mirroring verses three and four. The great things he has done, the gladness we have, and the restoration we seek. First, let's see this. The great things he has done. The great things he has done in verses one through three. This is the seventh of what we call the Songs of Ascents. It's Psalms 120 through 134. This, like the rest of them, is a pilgrim song for Israel's annual journeys to Jerusalem for the high holy days, someone says. And what is it that they remembered on these journeys and pilgrimages? Look with me at verses 1 and 2, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. They remember a great and monumental deliverance, restoring the fortunes of Zion. It was like a dream come true. They were laughing, shouting with delirious joy. Even the nations around them saw it and said, the Lord has done great things for them. What event could cause that reaction, especially before the birth of Christ when this was written? The Exodus, maybe, but probably not. That's probably too early. Some say, oh, this was just a harvest song. Look at verses five and six. Probably not. Even though God proves his goodness by giving rain to the just and the unjust, even though that regularity is sustained by his mighty providence, humanly speaking, harvest is expected by everyone, by Gentiles, by atheists, everyone. So there's something bigger than the harvest going on here. Is it talking about the return from exile? The restoration of Israel's fortunes after exile, the journey home, the rebuilding of walls and temples. The end of exile is probably the background here, but even then, Derek Kidner says, verses one and four can embrace much more than this. There's probably a both and here. The psalmist was talking both about the return from exile, probably, and about any monumental deliverance in the lives of God's people. See, the return from exile was unexpected despite God's promises, so unexpected they could hardly believe it. That's why verse 1 says we were like those who dream. It was a dream come true, a joy beyond all words to utter, someone says. Another author tells us this dream of restoration reverses the nightmare of exile. Those words are true enough about the exile, but don't they embrace so many of our experiences in this life, and not just for us exiles and strangers who live after Christ's resurrection, after Peter's letter to the diaspora, even if you've never known the nightmare of physical exile, being separated from your home, we all know the suffering of spiritual exile. Many may know the nightmare of extended suffering with no relief in sight. That's why someone says that this psalm is a cameo of the story of the church in the Old Testament. It's, it's the story of God's people in miniature. It's exile and restoration, suffering in salvation. You might remember a few months ago, I shared this quote, you suffer more because you don't expect to suffer at all. I don't like suffering. The Bible tells me to count it all joy when I suffer. That does not come naturally to me. I don't 
know about the rest of you, but when we endure suffering, it makes God's deliverance all the more joyful, doesn't it? Kidner also writes, whether Zion's restoration was from famine or siege, captivity or plague, it had been obviously miraculous and widely talked about. It remained a vivid national memory. Which is why verse 3 follows verse 2. You see, they remember what the nation said. The Lord has done great things for them. That's verse 2. And then verse 3 says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Us. He's done great things for us. Is this your story? Despite the pain of exile, suffering, or something else, has the Lord still done great things for you? For us, I've seen both pain and joy, especially in the past three to four years. So have many of you. I've heard some of your stories. Now is probably not the best time for all the details, right? But I hope that we can all say, no matter the details, that in the midst of pain, suffering, hardship, loneliness, something else, that the Lord has done great things for us. We can see his mighty hand of deliverance. We can remember the joy of dreams come true, spontaneous laughter, shouts of joy. And corporately, I believe we've seen it too. We've seen attendance patterns return to normal. We've seen sustained, generous giving. We've seen new leaders emerging. We've seen a new church planted despite a pandemic. Our denomination has seen it as well. After a few rocky years, our denomination is seeing renewed growth in giving, membership, baptisms for adults and children. I'm not saying it's like the beginning chapters of the book of Acts, but there's slow and steady growth. And the PCA is planting a new church every two weeks. Praise the Lord for that. Should we rest on our laurels? Should we congratulate ourselves, dislocate our shoulder, patting ourselves on the back? No. But we should say, the Lord has done great things for us. Which leads to our next point. After the great things he has done, we see secondly the gladness we have. The gladness we have in verse 3. Let's read that together. We already did, but one more time. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. A simple statement, but a profound one. And two modern translations use the past tense at the end of verse 3. Something like, we were happy. We were joyful. But even if it's supposed to be present tense, that, that happiness here is it's based on what God has done, right? All of verses 1 and 2 are looking backwards, aren't they? To the time when God restored the fortunes of Zion, when we dreamed, laughed, shouted, when the nations saw what God had done. So when the psalmist says in verse 3, we are glad, Seems like one of two things. Either he's glad because of what happened in the past, or secondly, he remembers the time when he was glad. That time in the past when he said, we are glad. I kind of think it's the second one. It's a happy memory, but it's only a memory at this point. <clears throat> Which is why he pleads for another flood of mercy in verses 4 and beyond. So, you might wonder, why did I title this point, The Gladness We Have? It's not because I'm implying that lament is sinful, that we just need to get past all of our sadness and make ourselves be happy. It's not the Bible's emphasis. The most common genre of psalm is the lament, the woe is me psalm. 
Having experienced verses 1 and 2, for example, does not imply that sadness never returns for the same reason, for some new reason. You may know the great things that the Lord has done for you and still be in a time of bitter providence. God does not command you to fast forward through your grief. But all of this is a counterbalance to your grief. You and I, we grieve as those who have hope. The world grieves without any ultimate and eternal hope. But this hope, this gladness, it counterbalances our grief. You might say God's people should be characterized by a sober gladness. Now, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're naturally bubbly or not, this is about the fruit of the Spirit. This is not about your personality. Even in times of sorrow, we we have a, a seed of hope. Because even when it feels like God has abandoned you, even if you say that to him, as some of the Psalms do, you know it's not true. And even in your joy... Your joy is only partly the result of your circumstances because you know that you've tasted joy unspeakable that awaits you in heaven. Sober gladness. It's important for us to remember the reasons for that, for joy, for gladness, the reasons that can't be taken away. It's also important for the world around us to see that. We want people to see the hope that is within us. Why is that? One reason Because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is increasingly an angry world, a frustrated world, a scared world. And while we are not perfect, not by a long shot, we have the hope that the world needs. And that hope is not us. It's not our wonderful personalities. That hope is Christ, the one who died for the angry and the fearful the one who died for sinners while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Romans 5 says, while we were still weak and ungodly at just the right time, Christ died for us. And knowing that allows us to be glad while the nations rage around us. I sometimes get asked, what kind of PCA church are you? Are you confessional or conservative? Are you missional? And sometimes there are other descriptors and options thrown in there. And to be clear, while I love our confession of faith and I'm not ashamed of it, while I always want to focus on our mission to glorify God and make disciples both across the street and around the world, I usually answer that question like this. I'm conservative, but not angry. And I hope we are too. At least I try to be. At least we try to be. I try to remember all the reasons I have to be glad about all that God has done and is still doing. And I can hear one potential objection bubbling up. You know, there are some things we should be angry about. True. Some anger is appropriate. Righteous anger is appropriate if we truly understand it. The anger that is offended for God's sake, not primarily for my sake. In fact, there's one book on the Psalms that says we are never angry enough. About what? We are never angry enough about our own sin, which offends a holy God. Fact is, most of us need a little bit more of Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I don't need much motivation to get angry. How about you? 
I do need motivation to remember the great things that God has done for me. I need to work to remember the reasons to be glad for my sake, for the sake of my neighbors, our neighbors who need hope amidst an angry and hopeless world. I need to remember the gladness we have, the gladness that God has given us. Derek Kidner, I know I'm quoting him a lot. Everything he writes is quotable. I promise I'm being restrained this morning. He says, the psalmist here, hope to him seems like a distant memory as he writes verse three, but even that distant memory propels him on in verses four and following. There's another author that says, and yet because God had begun to pour forth reviving grace, even if at first just a trickle, they had assurance of greater grace yet to come. Whether the drizzle from heaven has begun or whether it's a distant memory, doesn't it remind you what's possible from the fount of every blessing? The gladness we have, it leads inevitably to this, the restoration we seek. The restoration we seek in verses four through six. Let's read four and five for a moment. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I promised I'd explain this Negev bit. Negev means dry or parched, best we can tell. It's the name of the southern portion of Israel. It was a desert or something close to it. It would get so dry that rivers would dry up, leaving wadis or ravines. But then eventually the rain would come again. And when it came, it would create instant rivers, flash floods. Kidner says few transformations are more dramatic than a dry gully into a dangerous torrent. It's a river wild, seemingly out of nowhere. They could even turn the surrounding desert into a place of grass and flowers overnight. Sounds unbelievable, but Pastor Stephen showed us pictures of a similar phenomenon in California this week at staff meeting. One study Bible puts it this way, God's people were experiencing a dry season. After a time of past blessing, they pray here for a flash flood of his renewed blessing. And it's not a flash flood in the sense that they only want it for a short time. God, give us your mercy for two minutes. No, they just, they want it to come suddenly. A sudden display of divine favor that would overwhelm them with blessing. A flash flood of mercy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Flash floods of mercy, great transformations. Of course, verses five and six give a slightly different image of blessing and transformation. It's this image of a farmer. Farmers rarely get instant results. They sow or they plant and then they wait a long time until they reap, they harvest. So I think it's telling us to look for God's blessings, whether they're sudden or slow, but to know that God's blessings are certain. We don't know when they will come, but they can come suddenly. One day, a long season of tears may instantly change to shouts of joy. Someone says miracles of the past, it bids us treat as measure of the future. Dry places we should treat as potential rivers, hard toil and good seed as the certain prelude to harvest. See, this is the expectation we should have that often God's people will weep before our joy. We will weep before we reap, before we harvest God's blessings. So our response 
It's a bit more than just the sobriety that we talked about earlier. It's a bit more than just a general positivity. Our response should be a call to hopeful prayer. Isn't this what's modeled for us here? Don't we too need to say, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Restore us. Give us more of what we need. Whether it's more and more righteousness, more and more patience with my family and loved ones, more compassion for the weary, the downtrodden. How about more converts, more worshipers who come to know the grace that saved a wretch like me? How about more leaders, more models of godly manhood and womanhood? How about more generosity, more people who are generous with time and talents and their treasures? Keep in mind on this last point, I'm not saying give more and then God will give you more. But I am saying the fields are white for harvest. And I hope that lack of money, lack of willing servants won't be what keeps us and others from doing more ministry. I have some theories to share with you this morning. I suspect that our church is more affluent than the average church in the deep south. States where the majority of PCA churches are found. States that are usually in the top five in poverty. Why mention that? Because as best I can tell, I'm not a math major. Forest Gates per capita giving for the past year was slightly below the PCA average, which again, I suspect is weighted by those churches in the deep south. I further suspect that many of our people are very generous. Personal experience and other things tells me that. And that they divide their generosity between their local church and other worthy ministries. Now, godly people can disagree on different things. For example, should you give a 10%, a tithe to your church and then give offerings above and beyond that to others? Or should you divide your tithe among several different sources? Even if I had a preference to state, and he, I couldn't make that a definitive statement, I would ask you to consider this. If members of Presbyterian churches don't support their local church, then who will? It's not like they have another donor base to tap or something like that. So I would ask you, as our ministry grows, as our staff grows, as our hopes for future building expansion grow, would you consider giving more if it's appropriate to your local church? Another way to say it might be this. As we pray, restore our fortunes, O Lord, would you consider that maybe God has enabled you to be part of the answer to that prayer for others. Our God has been faithful. His people, you, have been faithful. And we trust that he and you will be faithful in the future. You might wonder why I'm spending so much time on that this morning. Because though I talked about money, isn't the real issue underneath it all generosity? In other words, you may be lavish with your money, but still stingy with your time, stingy with emotional energy. You may not care a rip about certain people that you find annoying or uninteresting or things like that. And if there's any area of our life where we aren't generous, what is the cause usually? I think it's that we don't believe our God is generous, that we don't really believe that God can supply all of the money, all of the time, all of the emotional energy that we need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, you could 
depending on your particular idol, you could leave here, write a ginormous check, or maybe volunteer all of your time and emotion and still miss the point. Your God, my God, has done great things for us, and he can do much more. He can shower you with a flash flood of mercy in a moment. He can transform work that seems fruitless in a flash. He can turn your tears to joy in a jiffy. It's okay if you want to mock my alliteration so long as you remember the point. Some of us might be in dry seasons of life. It's not that we've never seen God's blessings. We just don't see as much of them right now as we want. And in a similar way, as Israel first prayed this prayer, they were likely waiting for a new king to come. David's dynasty was likely dormant, dry, a distant memory seemingly. But even in their tears and their disappointment, they prayed with hope. Verses 5 and 6, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Did they know how good great David's greater son would be? Did they know that his coming would be like a dream come true? Did they know the joy and peace that would come? Did they know that they'd be receiving a greater king, a greater exodus, a greater temple who would dwell among them in citizenship in a greater country? I don't know. But they did know this, that the Lord had done great things for them, that they were glad, that he could make them glad again. Now, like them, the Lord has done great things for us. We should expect them to do it again. We still need on a daily basis for God to restore our fortunes. We still need his mercy to come like a flood to free us from bondage of sin, to turn our tears into shouts of joy. We need all that. But our good God has brought us through many dangers, toils, and snares. So why won't he keep being good? So restore our fortunes, O Lord. Give us a flash flood of your blessing, a sudden outpouring of your favor. And once you've poured it out on us, empower us to share it with others, to be able to say among the nations, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Make it so, O Lord. Restore our fortunes like a flash flood in the desert for your glory, for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great things that you have done. Father, we pray that whether we are in the midst of it, sensing all of that joy and gladness, or whether we are in a dry season of life, whether we don't see that joy as a present reality, but we see it as a past distant memory, Father, we pray that you might pour it upon us, that you might bless us so that we might bless others. God be with us. Bless us for Jesus' sake. We ask it all in his great name. Amen.